seven. for those reminders. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. This morning we're going to read starting in verse 5 down through verse 14. Ecclesiastes 7, 5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. For oppression makes a wise man mad, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. Wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection just as money is protection, but the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the lives of its possessors. Consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. I'd like to spend the next couple of Sundays finishing off chapter 7. You have a couple Sundays reprieve from Ecclesiastes. But I'm really being challenged by this passage, and there are a couple of thoughts that I wanted to go back and pick up on before we walk into the rest of, of this first section, which runs down through verse 14. There are a couple of thoughts that I've been thinking about, and one is this, that I need to let death teach me how to live. He talks about the one who is wise, that he would receive this in his bosom, or into his heart, that he would learn from the things that he is saying. And literally in verse 2, the end line is, and the living takes it literally to his heart. And so I've taken this to be personal for myself. Whatever you do with it, you do with it. But for me, these are things that I have pondered on this last week and considered in regards to my own life, that I need to let death teach me how to live my life seems like a rather odd principle in saying that he gives us, but it is very truthful. And Solomon explains the fact that death is the end of every man. We all are, are going to face it. We can't avoid it. It's a reality of the fall. It's a reality of, of what lays ahead for all of us. The question is whether or not we're going to take this to heart and learn something from this reality. I mentioned that young man who said to me that, Steve, there will always be cops and gangsters and in the end we all die 
Now, he didn't realize the impact of what he said to me, but it gave me opportunity to share the gospel because there were a couple things that he laid out for me, and one is the acknowledgement of the fact that there is death, and we all die. It's the consequence of the fall, the certainty of the fact that we will all face that. The other thing that he gave me was the fact that he acknowledged that there are good guys and bad guys. There is good and evil. We live in a moral universe, and the good comes first because there must be a standard of which there's a violation. So therefore, the good, the righteous, is going to win in the end. So God presented me with a great open door in that statement that young man gave to me, and over a period of time in the conversations we had, he surrendered his life to Christ as Lord and Savior. Sometimes when people bring up the issue of death, we're kind of afraid. And the things that sometimes people say in relation to the reality of death might shock us and get us to back up a little bit. But I just tell you, don't be afraid. Don't fear. We have the message of hope. Walk through that door when it's provided for you. The thing that I've noticed about death is that it sort of removes all of the things that get in the way usually of our conversations. It simplifies life. We can get down to the reality of things when we're all facing death. So it's interesting, in Psalms 90, this is by Moses' contemplation in regards to the fact of the futility, the transitoriness of life. You, you think about the wandering in the wilderness is when likely Moses wrote this particular psalm when all these bodies were falling day after day after day after day. They're dealing with corpses. And this is the plea that comes in verse 12. So teach us to number our days. In other words, help us to consider our mortality so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. That we might know how to live wisely. That we might learn something from the reality of the fact that our life is transitory. And I had this thought in regards to this chapter. And, you know, I, you might want to just sort of push past these things. But the more that I thought about it, I realized that some of life's greatest gifts that come from God come in peculiar places. In other words, there is something that is beautiful and perplexing that you wind up finding a gift in a time when you think that you're only going to experience tragedy. There are things in our life that come upon us and we think that there's only going to be pain and suffering and then all of a sudden God gives us an amazing gift. Maybe it's clarity. Maybe he opens the eyes of our heart to understand who he is better. Remember, a brother was going through cancer, and I said, just rejoice, brother. And he said, are you kidding me? And I said, no, rejoice, because God is going to show you things about himself you never knew before. He's going to open the eyes of your heart to see who he is, the nature of his being, how much he loves you, <laughs> that he has pursued you throughout your life, that he has brought you into this amazing relationship with him. There are things that you will come to understand about him, and this is a moment designed just for for you. So these are not thoughts that we should just cast off, and Solomon definitely doesn't sugarcoat death for us, and he reminds us the fact that it still stocks the world because it's under a curse. I mean, sometimes we look at pain and suffering in our life, we forget we live in a fallen world. It's a part of the reality of life here. But he's also a genius, Solomon is. And why I say that is because he helps to draw a distinction between death in general and my own death personally and particularly. In other words, he gets me to think about my own death and what I'm going to face. And there is this repetitive blow that comes to us over and over that my death is certain. I am going to die. 
But not only that, that my death is coming, and therefore I need to advance, right, in meeting it today. I need to learn something from the reality of the fact that death is going to come upon me. How am I living my life? In other words, as we look at the returning of Christ, am I preparing myself for His return to receive Him? Or am I preparing myself to enter into His presence when I go from this place? In other words, am I learning to live by preparing to die? Oftentimes we find ourselves trying to avoid the subject. We don't want to talk about it. And in this day of positivism, we can't even talk about sin, let alone death. We don't talk about graveyards anymore. Now we give nice, pleasant names to cemeteries because that perturbs us and that disturbs us. And we don't want to think about the inevitable reality of the fact that we are going to return to the dust from which we came. But we must face it. There are things for us to learn, and Solomon has laid out the paradox of life for us in this world. It is a place of permanent repetition and constant change. A world of permanent repetition, we do the same things over and over again, seven days a week, again and again, and we're looking for something to interrupt that. We're looking for a new job, a new relationship, a new house, new experiences, a whole new chapter, and then we die. Or if we see the world as this constant change, we long for something that is permanent. It's the gym, trying to hang on to life, right? The health plan, the insurance policy. We want guarantees, we want certainties, the facelift, but then we die. Solomon helps us to face the reality of this, and really my prayer is this then for myself and for all of us, that the Lord would prepare us to end well. Verse 8, he says, The end of the matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. In other words, he is reminding us that we need to live life in light of eternity. Verse 8 is going to provide this amazing transition in verses 9 through 12 when he's going to deal with the issue of living for the end and the now. He doesn't get into this great eschatological conversation and develop all these eschatological truths, these doctrines of end times, but he still points us towards eternity. And so Estes, in his illustration of life as a race, he makes this statement, the only measure that counts is the finish line, and in life it often takes considerable time until the wise course is vindicated. We may not see the results of our life of holiness and righteousness on this earth. We may not see the end result of that until we are in the presence of the Lord or until He returns. We must also strive in light of that reality. So I want to finish looking this morning at these thoughts that He lays out for us. And the overall thought is this, more good than. And verse 4 is going to provide a transition between verses 1 through 3 and 5 through 7. The catch words are, wise and fools, and this triggers a vocabulary that runs all the way down through to verse 12. He's going to talk about wisdom and folly and so on, and we see with biblical wisdom that there's always a contrast of nature's paths and destinies of two types of people. Takes all of life and reduces it down to their two kinds of individuals. Or, if we go to the New Testament, there is the believer and the unbeliever. There are those who are being saved and those who are perishing in regards to the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So the first thing I want to look at is this, that being criticized by a wise person is better than being praised by a fool. It's a great thought, isn't it? Being criticized by a wise person is better than being praised by a fool. So I have to ask this question, would you rather feel good or know the truth? 
if we're honest, most of us want to feel good. And so we want things that are going to make us feel better about ourselves and better about our life and make us comfortable in the way that we are, make us comfortable in our sin. We don't want to hear the reality of the fact that there is sin in our life and we need to face it and deal with it. This isn't just merely an Old Testament thought. It's a New Testament one. It's interesting because Jerry's taking us through 2 Timothy and I was reminded of chapter 4, verses 2 and following. And Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, that is to preach the message publicly with conviction. He says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For he reasons this in verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. I just want to feel good. <laughs> I always think about my, my dog growing up as a kid. And she used to like it. She was a Sheltie, but she used to like it if I would scratch just up behind her ear. And she would get her hind leg and she would start going, right? Because she liked the feel of that. That thought always comes to me when I read this passage. There are those who just want to feel good. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want you to talk about sin. You just want to hear about how good they are and how good life is and how much they deserve this, that, and the other thing. They don't want to hear the truth. Paul goes on to say, and they will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. Unfortunately, we're finding too much of this kind of preaching in the church. That which is too coddling. That which isn't telling the truth. That which isn't confronting man where he is in his sinfulness before God. The exhortation that comes to us in light of this verse is that we need to receive rebukes with humility, patience, and a willingness to change. That's the mark of wisdom. The mark of the fool is the one who wants to laugh it off. Proverbs, Solomon writes this in chapter 12, verse 1, The one who loves discipline loves knowledge, but the one who hates reproof is stupid. I know we teach our kids not to say that word, but it's in the Bible, so there it is. I've wrestled with this particular verse at, at periods in my life. I say that I, I, I love knowledge and I want to know and grow, but at the same time, I don't want to be told that I do things wrong. But if I really want to know and grow, then I'm going to be willing to let people tell me when there's sin in my life. And I'm going to be open to them pointing that out. And I'm going to be willing to change when I hear this. And kids are great at pointing out your hypocrisies in life and your shortcomings. Solomon also tells us in Proverbs 27, 6, he says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Doesn't it rankle you when someone tries to come and compliment you and you know they really don't mean it when they're doing it? Irritates me. There are those who prefer foolish humor, shrug off a rebuke, and excuse bad behavior and poor attitudes. Sometimes we do this. 
something happens and something in our nature is being confronted and we know that there's a particular sin in our life that's being highlighted and we want to just laugh it off. We want to minimize it. We want to pass it off because we don't want to face it or deal with it. And I have to say sometimes, you know, we find ourselves in a particular sin and we know we shouldn't be doing it. We know that it's sin. We know that we need to deal with it. And then someone comes along and points it out to us. And then there's something in our sinful nature where we say, you know what, I don't want to change because then that person's going to think that I change because they told me I need to change this in my life. And so therefore we plunge ourselves deeper into that sin. I'm sure none of you do that, I do that. I don't want to give them credit for the change in my life. So then I end up remaining in the very thing I know that I need to change. So we have to be cautious because we minimize things in our life. We can develop a habit of, of trying to drown out the realities of life and death with music, humor, feasting. We want to avoid the hard things, the difficult things, the things that we really need to be talking about. Pretend that it's not there. We need to be set to heed wise counsel when it comes from those who desire to strengthen our hearts with admonishment. Who are truly friends and they want to come and help us walk closer with our Lord. We need to be open to that. Verse 7, it is easy, easy routes become expensive detours. For oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. Easy routes become expensive detours. The loss, the compromise, the, the detour and the expensive one is the, the, the changing of one's character from being wise to being foolish. And we know that prosperity can cause people to abandon a wise lifestyle for one that is folly and foolishness, but so can adversity. Solomon helps us to see that persecution and oppression possesses a power that can pressure the wise into speaking or acting as fools. Sometimes we look at oppression as something that's injustice happening to someone else, and we can get moved to the point that we want to do something about it, and we want to sort of grease the wheels of justice a little bit, right? So we find ourselves playing the same game as the others that we are highlighting constantly in politics. We say shame on them for doing that, but then we turn around and do the exact same thing. We compromise our character when we do these kinds of things. Bribery, Solomon says, it appears to be a quick way to get things done, but in reality it turns a wise man into a fool and encourages the corruption already in one's heart. He's going to address this reality in chapter 7, verse 20. So the exhortation to us that comes then as he links these verses together for us in these Proverbs, it's far better to wait patiently and humbly for God to work out his will than we get angry and demand it our own way. Sometimes we can't wait for God to do what he's going to do. When we see things happening, we want to move things along. and We want to move the hand of God, and so we think I've got to do something about this. And sometimes we need to sit back and wait and see what God is going to do.
So we need to cultivate patience and humility. I think about Joseph, right? Began as a slave and ended up a prince. Does the right thing, runs from Potiphar's wife, winds up in jail. (laughs) Where's the payoff, God, for doing the right thing? But I'm reminded by Solomon here that oftentimes in our life, we're only looking to the short game. God's looking to the long game. And so therefore, we have to be careful because sometimes we look at situations in life, even adverse ones, ones we know where there's injustice, and we want to try and speed things along and make things happen when we really just need to wait and see what God's going to do. So like Joseph, we just need to thrive where we are whether you're in Potiphar's house or whether you're in jail. There's no indication that he bespoke against the name of God or that he acted unwisely in any way. He just thrived wherever he was and entrusted himself to a sovereign God. Well, what about David? When he knew he was anointed as God's choosing, right? But he still knew that Saul was king, but he knew he was going to become king, but he wasn't going to take it upon himself to remove Saul and put himself in Saul's place. So what does he do? He runs and hides, and he lives in caves, and he does all of these things, right, waiting for God to make the move. How many times do we get impatient with our situation? We want to see something happen now. And that one time where David is in the cave with his men, right? And then Saul comes in to do his business, right? If I can put it in Hebrew, he went to cover his feet. And so he's in there doing his business, and David cuts off a little fringe of his cloak. And he was moved by the fact that he did that. He felt so guilty for doing that. But he waited. He waited for God fulfill his plan in his life. Patience. Verse 8, finishing is better than starting. Definitely when you're working out. Finishing is better than starting. But it's the same for life. By faith we see what the end will be, but with patience we anticipate it. And we wait for it. And we look to see what God is going to do Better was the end of Moses' encounter with Pharaoh, wouldn't you say? Because there was triumph in the end, right? But there was a process that went on before this final deliverance of the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. Before they were taken out of there, they had to go through this process of of waiting. And so the beginning part of it, what came with that was abusiveness. So Moses says, I've come by God. He sent me to deliver you. But guess what? You're going to go through some stuff before we have the final triumph. So Pharaoh, the first response that he has to it, he says, all right, I want you to increase their labor. Provide no more straw for them. But they still must make the same quota of bricks every single day. But now they have to go get the straw for themselves and make the bricks. But God, you came to deliver us, right? There's injustice happening here. And not only that, but if you read through the plagues, the first three plagues, the nation of Israel were not exempt from them. They went through them. 
I thought you came to deliver us. Why are we having to go through this? I mean, you imagine frogs everywhere? And then the final one, they were only exempt if they applied the blood properly as God told them to. So I always tell my kids, listen to me, if you're in the will of God, don't assume the fact that everything's going to be hunky and dory. Because oftentimes we're in the will of God and we're still suffering. <laughs> Therefore, we have something to learn. So linking verses 8 and 9 together, the second part, patience is better than pride and anger. Literally, he says this in the second part of verse 8, better is the length of spirit, patient endurance. It's like the Greek word, makrothumia. It is to be long-suffering, and I love that translation of the word. Macrothumia, long-suffering. In other words, not short-suffering, long-suffering. In other words, you have great patience. And it just keeps stretching even further. But you look at oftentimes in our life, when things are happening in our life, right? We have short-suffering. So this is a lengthy spirit. This is patient endurance. As opposed to a height of spirit. This is a haughty spirit. In other words, the exhortation is to patience and humility. The catchword spirit here is what links verses 8 and 9 together. And unfortunately, even in NASB, they translate the first part of verse 9. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry. Literally, is do not be eager in your spirit to be angry. And so that's the catchword that links these verses together. In other words, anger can find fuel for its fire in impatience and pride. Isn't that what happens sometimes when we're in a difficult situation in our life? We think we deserve better. <laughs> Pride. God's chief end in everything is that I be happy, not His glory. Pride. So because I think I deserve better, then I become impatient when I'm not made happy. Or if we're like the fool, we seek pleasure in life and we seek happiness in life and we want these things. And then when adversity comes and difficult times come and suffering comes, then I think I deserve better than this and therefore I get very impatient with God when I have to sit and deal with this for very long. Hudson Taylor had an interesting thought about waiting on God. He said this, he said, as a rule, prayer is answered and funds come in. But if we are kept waiting, the spiritual blessing that is the outcome is far more precious than exemption from the trial. Oftentimes we pray and ask God and He provides for us. He answers our prayer. But sometimes He keeps us waiting. And things start to pile up and the pressure seems to be on. And now we're in the midst of this trial and it seems to get greater and greater. But He says the spiritual outcome of that is so much more amazing than. And this was a man who learned how to live a life of faith. Patience and humility enable a person to wait for the outcome of a matter and to actually witness the truth that the end is better than the beginning. Our end is better than our beginning, is it not? The glory that awaits us. There is nothing in this life that can be compared to that. There's no analogy, no illustration. I remember some guy tried to, to describe to us in preaching class in seminary 
tried to describe to us the, the amazingness of heaven, and he compared it to playing at, at Pebble Beach. <laughs> so the professor of the class stopped him in the middle of a sermon. He goes, are you going to try and liken heaven to playing Pebble Beach? You really going to go there? <laughs> the heart of a fool seeks pleasure. His song lacks wisdom. His laughter lasts momentarily. You can only laugh things off for so long, but a reality will come and get you. Harbors anger when things do not go his way. This is the end, end game, really. This is what happens. If we seek our own pleasure and desire and happiness, in the end, we're going to be angry because things are not going our way. But we are reminded at the end of this section, verses 13 and 14, consider the work of God, for he is able to straighten what is, who, who is able to straighten what is bent. And in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. He's in control of them both. Living for today is better than living for the past, verse 10 of chapter 7. Oh, the good old days. The good old days are a combination of bad memory and good imagination, right? They always seem better than they really were. What Solomon helps us to understand is the lack of wisdom on the part of fools that promotes this unhealthy, irrational nostalgia for the past. We do this when we look at the past and think that somehow man is more sinful today than he was yesterday. Romantics of bygone days reveal the fact that they are ignorant of history, but also of false theology. They fail to understand the sinfulness of man and the fallen condition of the world. I had a brother say to me one time, he says, you know, homosexuality today is not the same as homosexuality in the day of Paul. I said, you want to explain to me what you mean by that? Because if I take it one way, it brings up a lot of problems. Because there are those who are trying to argue that same fact. See, the homosexuality in Paul's day was merely immoral relationship with male prostitutes. But homosexuality today is a loving, monogamous relationship, and there it's okay. I said, if that's what you mean by that, you have a problem. They're one and the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Read Leviticus 18, right? Now, if you want to say that it's different in degree, it's intensified, or they become more militant, it's a possibility. But to somehow suggest that in days past, man was less sinful than he is today, it's not true at all. We just know about it. <laughs> man was doing these things long ago. From the time of the fall on, he has always done these things. There's nothing new under the sun. So don't live in the past, and, but decide to live for today. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't learn from the past. Paul does this, remember who you once were, but remember now this is who you are. doesn't mean that we shouldn't prepare for the future. What it means is that we must live today in the will of God, not be paralyzed by yesterday, nor hypnotized by tomorrow. A great essayist, philosopher, among many things, Belloc, he wrote this, a Franco-English writer, he said, while you're dreaming of the future or regretting the past, the present, which is all that you have, slips from you and is gone.
We have a tendency sometimes, and it's interesting, I start thinking about this in Philippians 3, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind. Sometimes we think that's only reference to the bad things. That's also the good things. Sometimes in our life, we live in the things that we did in the past. Oh, remember when we served the Lord this way? But you're not doing it now. The exhortation for us is to live in the now in regards to God's will for our life. Three last thoughts I'll leave you to ponder. We'll come back and look at these next Sunday. Wisdom is better than wealth. When crooked is better than straight. And adversity and prosperity are appointed by the same God. May God help us to learn from the principles that Solomon lays out here. There's much spiritual truth here, so don't rush past it. It might be uncomfortable, but there are amazing lessons for us to learn from.